You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. Okay, well, it is now time for our Sunday morning message, and I have called this message the world's only hope. Let me just open with a word of prayer, and then we're going to jump in to this study this morning. Father, we thank you so much for the word of God, and I pray now that you would use the the words of one mouth, Lord, just to open up your wonderful scriptures, that the body of Christ would be encouraged and edified, Lord God, in Jesus' name and for his sake. So I've called this this message the world's only hope. And I know Doug mentioned a couple of weeks ago about the passing of a a real giant of the faith in our age, a man named Rabbi Zacharias. He died on May the 19th. I wrote a dedication article for calvarychapel.com. This is a man who had a huge impact on my my ministry and the way I teach and think about a lot of things, as he has with millions of Christians around the world. You can go on calvarychapel.com and read that if you want. So let me read to you just the introduction to the article that I have there. I think you can see it on the screen now. I I wrote this. On the 19th of May, 2020, the world lost one of its greatest evangelical minds. Christian apologist and evangelist Ravi Zacharias and founder of RZIM passed from earth into glory. And he leaves behind him a legacy that will continue to proclaim the hope of the gospel for generations to come. I added my voice to the throngs of tributes from believers all over the world that had sort of posted eulogies and messages to the social media accounts. And one thing that I wrote in this article that I was moved to quote was these words. He has finished the course, and though we do not lay him to sleep in the grave with the sorrow of those who have no hope, yet we cannot but mourn that a great man and a prince has fallen this day in Israel. Now, these were words that were actually originally spoken by Charles Spurgeon at the death of the evangelical statesman, Lord Shaftesbury. He he did a sermon a few days after Shaftesbury died, and he said part of this. I figured they, for me, they really felt like fitting words as someone who had a a massive impact like Zacharias did, just like Lord Shaftesbury did. But as I've had time to sort of continually reflect on these themes, one thing that has come from these words is the theme of hope and obviously that's what I want to share with you and try and unpack a little bit with you this morning. So this message has really grown from from that article so please go and read that uh, if you want some of this stuff written down but if not we're going to explore it a little further this morning. Now myself I hadn't really taken the time to realize just how much of a theme that hope actually is in the scriptures. Now, yes, I know we, we use the word, we talk about it, we, we, it's, it's in a lot of scripture, but we don't often consider hope like a theme in and of itself. It's always sort of like a secondary theme. And now that I've spent some time really looking at the biblical data, I'm convinced that this is actually a mistake for us. So I want to try and almost treat hope like a doctrine here, a biblical doctrine, a thematic study throughout the Bible. We're going to do that a little bit here. Let me just start by reading the words of uh, a man named A.W. Tozer. This is what he had to say about hope. He said, hope is a word which has taken on a new and deeper meaning for us because the Saviour took it into his mouth. Loving him and obeying him, we suddenly discover that hope is really the direction taken by the whole Bible. Hope is the music of the whole Bible, the heartbeat, the pulse, and the atmosphere of the whole Bible. I love that. The direct Hope is the direction of the whole Bible, the heartbeat, the pulse 
of the Bible. It's amazing. Now, because of that, I think we ignore this theme at our own peril. Now, hope is such a multifaceted, rich subject, I cannot possibly hope to do it all with you this morning. But what I want to try and do is really just excite your hearts with the scriptures to study this more on your own. Thinking back to the ministry of Ravi Zacharias, he was an evangelist, he was an apologist. And anyone who is, has an interest in Christian apologetics will be familiar with the verse 1 Peter 3.15. It says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. This is like a foundational verse. The little phrase there, make a defense, is the word apologia. That's where the whole ministry of apologetics comes from. Now, what I want to do is really look at, um, look, this is the fundamental verse. It is talking about giving an account, making a defense and proclamation. But notice, it doesn't say of the gospel. That's not, obviously that's implicit in the statement, but it actually uses the word hope. We are to make a defense and give an account of the hope that we have. So this is, it's fundamental, it's foundational, and I want to explore that with you this morning. Now before we go any further, let's be clear what we mean by hope. Uh, a very simple Christian definition would be a, uh, a confident expectation of good things to come. If you read Hebrews chapter 6, you'll see that's where I'm drawing that from. Now this is not the way that the world would use that word. There is a few different ways in, in language that you can use a word. Hope has various different shades of nuance to it. Uh, in the world, you'll often hear hope used in a sort of optimistic desire, a, a wish that something might be fulfilled. And this is not the way we're, we're talking about hope here. Hope in the biblical context is the confidence that what God has done for us in the past guarantees our participation in what God will do in the future. And hope comes up all throughout the Bible. If you look at the slide there, hope and the Christian. Christians are called in one hope. We are to exult and rejoice in hope. We are to abound in hope. We look for the object of hope. We're not to be ashamed of hope. We hold fast to hope. We're not to be moved away from hope. And we continue this life in hope. And I could multiply that list many, many times. Make no mistake, hope is foundational to the Christian life. 1 Corinthians 13, 13, that famous verse. For the Christian, we are bound by that threefold cord, faith hope and love it says but now faith hope and love abide these three but the greatest of these is love this is the the triad of virtues that we often see uh, in the christian world and notice hope is right in the middle of faith and love and we know faith and love we talk about them a lot we don't talk about hope so much so you could actually say that i would say that hope could designate the very essence of christianity and we'll see that as we go through now, you do see the world, don't you, using these terms, faith, hope, and love, but usually in a very sort of sentimental way that really evacuates from the many real meaning that we are looking at here from the scriptures. So I want to make sure that we, we understand that. They are not merely abstract concepts. They're not a vain longing for some utopia where things will eventually get better in the sort of way that we don't know how that will be fulfilled. For the Christian, we find all of these virtues encapsulated in a person. And that is in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. 1 Timothy 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Saviour, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. 
Notice in this verse, it describes Jesus Christ as our hope. He is the foundation of our hope in this world. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. I read that, remember, from the funeral at the beginning. We do not grieve as those who have no hope because we have a living hope. This is what makes Christianity different from all other worldviews. We have a living hope. Look at 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled and will not fade away, reserved for you in heaven. This is why the resurrection is so crucial. And this here is linking hope with the resurrection of, of Christ. So, you know, there are some uh, liberal theological circles where they'll talk about the resurrection not being physical, just being like a spiritual resurrection. When you see how that undoes the entire message of hope in the Bible, I hope you'll be uh, clear if you ever encounter that, just to give it a wide berth, stay away from it. It's not the biblical teaching. The point that we're making here is that we come to a living God and not a dead God. Just as they would say in the Old Testament, not a God of wood or stone, but a living God. At the, the funeral for Ravi Zacharias, a private funeral that was held, the, 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 the pastor officiating, a guy called Sam Albury, he said this when he was talking about the grave, and this is a lesson for us. He says, we know it is not the final destination because it was not Christ's final destination. Our hope, he said, is as certain as Jesus's grave is empty. And this is why the resurrection is so pivotal to the Christian faith. This is why Paul said, if Christ is not raised, then we are all foolish. Because if we do not have that living hope, then we are just believing in a set of ideas, a metaphysical, uh, moralistic system of ethics. But that's not what we have. We have a living God. It's so crucial. Now, one of the things that I love to do, if you've heard me teach before, I love to connect New Testament teaching and show you the sort of the foundational roots that we find for this in the Old Testament. It's exciting to see when you have these links between Scripture, the unity of the Bible, and it just opens up the Word of God for you in a new way. I'm hoping I can do that with you this morning with the theme of hope and in a couple of other ways. But before we jump into just looking at it from this sort of scriptural point of view, I want to spend just a few minutes now examining the concept of hope from a cultural point of view. Uh, and we're going to look at it in the negative sense now. So the message of hope is really the, almost the opposite of hope. You could say despair is the opposite of hope or hopelessness, the same sort of thing there. So let me ask a question. Do you despair when you look around at the world today? Is hopelessness a real problem in this world? Now, if you are, you know, in 2020, we've been encountering some things that have made us think about these issues more and more. If you type in hopelessness to Google, You'll notice the first three pages of things that come up, but the, the very first one that came up was the NHS Mental Health Helpline. And you know we've just had Mental Health Awareness Week. Now, many of us have probably not considered the relationship of hope to this issue, or should I say hopelessness to this issue. As I scrolled through many of these helplines, I was struck by how many of them, particularly the, the suicide prevention hotlines, were called things like Hopeline or Hope UK, and all these sorts of things that imply that obviously the negative is hopelessness. In fact, the whole first three pages of Google are all links to do with hopelessness, depression, and suicide. They're articles from clinics, from foundations, from psychologists, 
all looking at trying to help people overcome feelings of hopelessness. In fact, so critical is this concept of hopelessness to mental health that the clinical psychologist Aaron Beck, back in the 70s, he posited what they call the hopelessness theory of suicide. Let me just explain this briefly to you because it's still current today. He was asking what possible force could override the, uh, the sort of the survival instinct, as he saw it, that man had, that instinct to survive. What force is powerful enough to override that instinct? And his studies came to the conclusion that the force turned out to be hopelessness. He found that hopelessness is a stronger indicator of suicidal intent than, in fact, depression itself. And since that study, Beck has been pivotal in measurements, uh, sort of scales that aid clinicians in diagnosing mental health and suicidality, so much so that they actually have what is called the Beck Hopelessness Scale. The Beck Hopelessness Scale. As I was reading about this, it really struck me that this is a a clinical diagnosis, a, a level of hopelessness linked to all these other issues. I read another article, it's actually on Oprah Winfrey's website. If you know Oprah, she's very much into some of the new age sort of power of positive thinking, spiritual stuff. But she had an article by a psychologist on there, and it was how to overcome feelings of hopelessness. He gave three main uh, tips. And the first one was, firstly, to doubt your hopelessness. That's kind of the power of positive thinking aspect. The second one was to try new things. And the third one, and this is the one that jumped out at me, look at what isn't hopeless. Look at what isn't hopeless. Now, these are the sort of advice that are coming from clinicians regarding hopelessness. But I hope you can at least just understand what I'm trying to show here, that this is a massive, massive issue culturally as well. This is why I believe that the advice, you know, look at something that's not hopeless. You see people searching around, desperately searching for something that isn't hopeless, something to place their hope in, to place their trust in. And this is not too easy to find, particularly in 2020. We've seen a lot of things that would actually make us believe things are fairly hopeless in some ways. But people end up placing their hope in the wrong things. Now, we see this. This is not new. We see this all the time in the scriptures. Think of the history of Israel. How many times did the Lord warn them not to put their trust in riches, not to put their trust in their horses, in their power, in their military might, or to look outside themselves, and we see them putting their trust in foreign nations, in Egypt, in Assyria, and every time one of these things, they're always let down by their hope because it's a dis- uh, you know, going against what the Lord has said. But people do the same thing today. They look to put their hope in political figures, in governments, in social programs, but again, again and again, these things fail, and then people are left devastated with that in heightened feeling of hopelessness and despair and this then creates a a sense of fear and desperation which ultimately in some respects leads to oppression and it's a continual cycle that we have. The atheist John Paul Sartre, uh, he was a famous, famous writer, sort of existentialist atheist, he wrote this shortly before his death. He said that he resisted so strongly feelings of despair that he would try to convince himself by saying, I know I shall die in hope And then in profound sadness, he would add the words, but hope needs a foundation. And again, that really stuck out to me. We're talking about hope and hopelessness. And here's an atheist declaring that hope needs a foundation. And that's what I want to look at today, an object. We need to have an object to place our hope hope in. Now, let me just ask this in a broad sense. Do you think that there could be a connection between this sort of uh, mass 
global hopelessness that we see in the Western world and all the associated problems that are coming from that, could it be that we see this so much, I'm not simplifying the issue, but let's look at it from a broad perspective. Could it be that we are experiencing this in the world because we have actually rejected the very foundation of hope itself? You see, we are the church, we are offering a message of a God who literally identifies himself as the God of hope. That is one of his names, one of his titles, Romans 15, 13. It says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. May the God of hope fill you with hope. God wants us to abound in hope, to overflow with hope, to live a life that is saturated with hope. And this is a God who gives us all the supernatural resources to live with this hope inside of us. What does that verse say? That Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's a God who promised us the assurance of hope, happiness in hope, and ultimately a life that will be purified by the watching and waiting for the great appearance of that blessed hope, the great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who is our hope. And he's not only our hope, he is the only hope for the entire world. When I read that third point in the article on Oprah's website, and it says, look to something that isn't hopeless, and I thought of all the things that people look to, but you know what verse just kept coming back to my mind, and it was Hebrews 12:2, that says, let us look unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand at the throne of God. Let us look unto Jesus. He is really the only thing that is in fact hopeless because he himself is hope. He is a God that offers hope in this present life, in amidst all the trials and tribulations of life, but one that continues to offer hope into eternity. It's a hope that all things will be made right, that death will be no more, that injustice will be removed from this earth. This will be a time when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the message of hope. And this has really been the anthem of the church for the past, well, for millennia since the church began. And before that, for the time of Israel too. Think of that great hymn, Amazing Grace. It says, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. We all know those words. The Lord has promised good to me. His word, my hope, secures. He will... He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. We hope in God. We have hope in his word. Think of another favorite hymn of mine, In Christ Alone. What's the first line of that verse? In Christ alone, my hope is found. And this is, again, this is the anthem of the church. Now, if you go to Israel today and you hear their national anthem, it's a song called Hatikva. And that is one of the words in Hebrew that means the hope. Let me just read to you a small portion of the lyrics. It's a lovely tune if you've ever heard it, but it says, Our hope is not yet lost, the 2,000-year-old hope, to be a free nation in our land, the land of Zion and Jerusalem. Now, obviously, they're focusing on the, the sort of the national elements of that. However, I do believe these are covenantal promises, so they are a valid hope. Yet I must also qualify that by saying, I don't believe they can be properly understood unless they are understood as being... Uh, seen in conjunction with the God of Israel, the Messiah, who is the hope of Israel. So what I want to do now is to get into a little bit of exegetical theology. I want to go to the book of Jeremiah with you, 
and we're going to shed some light, hopefully, on the words of Jesus in the New Testament, looking at this concept of hope. So if you have a Bible, let's go to Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. This is just one verse that sets the context for the book of Jeremiah. Chapter 2, verse 13. It says this, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So that's really giving you a, a, this is basically what the whole book of Jeremiah is going to be about, prophesying uh, to Judah about not forsaking the Lord. But I want you to notice the way that he identifies himself here as the fountain of living water, because this develops throughout the whole book of Jeremiah, and ultimately it develops into the gospel period and the teaching of Jesus. I'm sure you're all thinking of the same verses. We're going to unpack them a little bit this morning. Now let's jump to Jeremiah chapter 17. We'll focus on verse 13 again. I want you to to read this with me. It says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame, and those who turn away on earth will be written down, because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. You see, look at this title. It says, O Lord, the hope of Israel. The Lord here is called the hope of Israel. Now I want to unpack that. We're talking about hope this morning. I want to unpack the meaning behind that because there's some beautiful sort of word plays going on here in the Hebrew. Now you see on the screen I've put the Hebrew words in brackets there so you can see. One of the words in Hebrew that is translated here for hope is the word mikvah. Now this is a noun. It can, it can mean hope but it has another meaning too. And that is the meaning of water reservoir or collection of water. You see that in Exodus 7:19, it's translated that way. Now, if you go to Israel today, the, the, the tour guides will often take you to what they call mikvahs, which are these big baptismal pools, these steps down into these big places of water that the Jewish people used to wash and, and purify themselves in. They call that a mikvah. So it's very interesting here that, I, that you see the word hope is actually translated with the word mikvah. So it's saying, because remember the theme is of living waters. So the hope of God is the water reservoir of Israel. That's the first part of the wordplay. But then Jeremiah, sort of with that eloquence that he has, he, he makes a second wordplay. The phrase translated in English there, put to shame, in, in the text I have on the screen, it's the word yevoshu. And this is a verb which can mean put to shame, but it has another meaning that can also mean to dry up or to wither away. Now put those things together. What is Jeremiah really saying? And we miss this in the English, but with this bit of background, hopefully we'll see it. With this one verse, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Jeremiah is really saying this about hope and about God. He's saying, God, you are the water reservoir of Israel, and whoever leaves you will surely dry up and wither away just a beautiful parallel sort of double entendre that we have in this text and why will they dry up because they have forsaken the fountain of living water and this is the way that God identifies throughout Jeremiah as we have seen now have that background in your mind remember we have the prophet Jeremiah calling the nation of Israel not to forsake God but rather to avail themselves of him as the source of living water And this is in the times of Jeremiah the prophet. Jump forward now with me to the first century. There was another prophet in Israel at this time who was once again 
calling the nation of Israel to repentance. Don't miss the parallel. This is the background, this is the sort of the prophetic background to the gospel period and the early ministry of Jesus Christ as he is operating in that, that office of prophet. We know that Christ was a prophet, a priest, and a king. And in the early part of his ministry, he's very much operating as a prophet, almost building upon what the previous prophets of Israel, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, have been using here. But I, I believe he's really drawing on the prophet Jeremiah as he makes these sentences. He is again uh, calling Israel back to repentance. Now, let's go to John chapter 4, and we'll see him flesh this out a little bit more. This is the very famous story of Jesus with the woman, of, uh, woman at the well, the woman of Samaria. It's a very famous episode. We all are quite familiar with it. Now, the impact, and, and when I've heard this taught on, the, the dramatic point is usually that Jesus is, in fact, teaching, talking and conversing with a Samaritan woman, which in those times was not really acceptable. Now, whilst that is a valid emphasis in the story that Jesus was crossing those sort of cultural uh, divides, I don't believe that's the primary emphasis. And I say when we have this background of Jeremiah, we'll see that there's something even more sophisticated than that going on. Let me read to you just, I'll read to you a couple of verses. So it's John chapter 4, uh, verse 10 to 14. Uh, I don't think I've got a slide for this, so just follow along in your Bibles. I'll read it for you. It says, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked and he would have given you living water. So again, immediately here, think back to Jeremiah, what we've been talking about, the God of hope, the water reservoir of Israel. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? This is the question. This is the question that he wanted everyone to answer at this time, to think about. You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Now remember, think what I said the context of Jeremiah was. My people have committed two evils. They have uh, rejected me, the fountain of living water, to hew cisterns for themselves that are broken and can hold no water, as in they'll need to be filled up again. So exactly what Jesus is drawing upon here. They'll thirst again with, that, with, the, with the things they've done themselves. He goes on, verse 14, But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Now notice the impact of what he's making here. He knows, and the Jewish people know, that there's so many verses in Jeremiah, for instance, that talk of God as being the source of living water. But now Jesus, in this conversation, notice, he doesn't say, God will give you the living water. He says, I will give you the living water. So this is Jesus self-identifying as the God, as the hope of Israel, as the water reservoir of those living waters as revealed in the book of Jeremiah. This is an implicit claim to deity by Jesus Christ here. Now, we always have the question, why doesn't Jesus just claim to be God? And, and of course, that, that is 21st century language being placed upon first century context of Israel. To, to come and just say, I am God, would have meant nothing to, to these people. This is a much more sophisticated way because he's being very specific and he's self-identifying with the God of the Old Testament, which it would have been, he's, remember, he's speaking to it in an Israel, uh, first century Israel audience here. It's a very powerful and sophisticated way that he is claiming both the attributes and uh, self-identification with God. Now, there's more to this story. I love this story, The Woman at the Well. I'll, I'll just share a little bit 
bit of a digression, but we'll go on to see what happens. You see, remember that Jesus then has this conversation with her and he draws out this secret. He says, go and get your husband. And, and you know, it turns out that she has five husbands. The person she's with is not even her husband right now. And it goes on and on the conversation. You see, this is why I love it, because when this woman encounters the hope of Israel, the, the water reservoir of Israel, the source of these living waters, even this thing in her life that she was trying to hide, this shame in her life, ends up being used for the glory of God. And it actually ends up being a testimony that brings people to the Lord. Look at verse 29 in John chapter 4. Remember, she runs and she says, she runs back into the city, the village, and she says, come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. Told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? And she's talking about the, that issue with the five husbands, all, all the, this part of the shame culture at that stage. And then in verse 39, a little bit further down, it says, from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all the things that I have done. You see, so as she immerses herself in the water reservoir of Israel, in the hope of God, he transforms and uses even those greatest things that she was trying to hide, those sins, that failure that we have in our life, in the hands of God, it ends up being a testimony that actually ends up bringing people to God. And that is a God of hope, that it doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been in this life, when you fully immerse yourself, when you walk into the mikvah, the baptismal pool, so to speak, of those living waters, when you give yourself over to Jesus Christ, he will take that, he will use it for his glory in one way or another. This is a God of hope. And we see this same sort of principle. Let's flip over to John chapter 7 now. We see him doing this. The occasion is the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. John chapter 7, verse 37 to 38. It says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Again here, I believe, he, obviously the occasion is the Feast of Tabernacles where they used to have this great water pouring ceremony. The priests would come from the temple to the living water and bring it back up and pour it on the altar. So the backdrop is all about living water. But again, that specific phrase, I believe, is pointing us back to the Jeremiah's words to the nation of Israel. Do not forsake God. Because remember what's going to happen at this time. Generally, the leadership of Israel in the first century, they are going to forsake the hope of Israel who is in their midst at this time. The parallels are just amazing when you see it like this. Let's look, so, so he says that, it's a question of identity. He's using the living water motif, I believe, to clearly identify himself as the God of Israel. And as we've seen in Jeremiah, that is the hope of Israel. Now, if we go back to Jeremiah chapter 17, uh, a few verses previous to the one that we read, we're gonna see that Jeremiah actually gives us two sorts of people. He, he does this sort of uh, analogy where he gives us two different types of people. Uh, and I've shared with you before about the two ways that you often see illustrated throughout the Bible and Scripture. This is another one of, that fits into those categories. And it's, again, I want to share it with you. It's a beautiful example for us. Jeremiah 17, verse 5 to 8. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes. But will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant, 
Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is in the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. So you have these two sorts of people here. You have one, those who forsake the Lord. So this is the ones that come away from the fountain of living water, from the hope of Israel. These are the ones who are hewing water from their own broken cisterns. These are the ones that Jesus says will thirst again. It says they will dry up and wither away. We've seen that word play later on in Jeremiah already. But the blessed man, the happy man, the content man, the fruitful man, he is the one who has drunk deeply from the source of living water, from the reservoir of Israel, from the hope of Israel, and in Jesus' context, from the Messiah of Israel, from him himself. Like he said to the woman at Samaria, I am the one now who will give you these living waters. And notice the wording. You might, you might recognize some of the text in Jeremiah there where it says, uh, he will be like a tree planted by water. Now, if you, if you know the book of Psalms, you, you'll immediately be connecting that with Psalm chapter 1. Let me turn there and read it to you. Because it's almost like Jeremiah is literally quoting this passage of scripture here. Psalm 1 verse 1 says this. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. Listen to verse 3. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields in its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. So we get all those same concepts there. A tree firmly planted that can withstand drought, it can withstand many things because its roots are firmly planted, and it will bring forth fruit. And this, I see here, a connection with hope and the word of God. We've been looking at the living water and the hope of Israel as that sort of source of living water. But now I believe Jeremiah also connects it with hoping in the word of God. And we learn this from John's gospel too. Because not only have we seen in John's gospel, John 4 and John 7, that Jesus identifies as the living water, as the reservoir of Israel. He's here connecting that with the word of God. What else do we see in John's gospel? Another main way that Jesus identifies as God in John's Gospel. We get it in the prologue in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the words were with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So this is what the Gospel of John is just such an amazing book. That's why they say that you can swim in it or you can dive into it. Um, so much depth to it. But again, I believe that's what's going on here. You see, the man who has immersed himself totally into the hope of God, the reservoir of Israel, the one who has literally walked down into that baptismal pool and completely submerged himself in the living waters of the Lord, that man will delight in the word of God. It says in Psalm 130 verse 5, Wait for the Lord, my soul does not wait, and in his word do I hope. The word of God will be a joy to that person. Romans 15:4. Whatever was written in earlier times, was written for our instruction so that through the perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we may have hope. So hope here again is intimately now connected with the word of God. I'll say it again, I've said it many times. The word of God is absolutely essential for the Christian life. Particularly, I would say in these days, particularly in days where the times are quite frightening, where there is a, a hopelessness around the world, we need to be reading the word of God, memorizing it, studying it, meditating it, praying it, singing it, and most importantly, obviously, living the word of God. And then we will exhibit the characteristic of faith, 
hope and love, that great triad of virtues that we have in the Christian faith. And this, again, is why the Bible says that we are living epistles, written not with ink but with the Spirit of God, written with the Spirit of God, those living waters that are drawn from the reservoir of Israel. The God of Israel, as we see revealed to us in the book of Jeremiah, as we see now Jesus self-identifying with his divinity in that way in the Gospels and saying that he will now be the source and the hope. And we see not only for Israel, for the women at Samaria, but for the entire world. And it is this message that we then see his apostles who are empowered by that same living water taking this message and turning the world upside down. Okay, replacing hopelessness with hope. That is one way to look at the gospel. Now let's end this study on hope by looking at an eschatological, an end times concept of hope. Because again, this is a very neglected area. People stay away from it because of the controversy. I understand all that, but it's a real shame because you're missing the consummation, the conclusion of this great and glorious message that we have. And the message is really just retelling God's heart and God's story for us. So if we miss off the end of that, you don't get the dramatic conclusion that everyone wants. I mean, that's the main part of the story. So we mustn't neglect that. You see, not only do we have hope in all the ways that we've looked at and discussed, hope has a real practical uh, impact in our lives. The expectation of the coming of the Lord is a doctrine that you know, we're living in light of the expectation that the God of hope will come again. Um, let's turn to Titus chapter 2, and we'll look at the way this is described in the New Testament. Uh, Titus chapter 2 verses 11 to 14 it says for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires to live sensibly righteously and godly in this present age looking for the blessed hope the appearing and the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good deeds. Looking for the blessed hope. That's how it's described here. The coming of the Lord. This will be the time that when he will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of his power. This will be the time when we see him face to face, when everything that we know of the old order of the old creation will just pale into insignificance as we are confronted with the glory and majesty as we look into the face of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. He is the one who controls the living water. It is God it is Jesus Christ. This is the consummation of our hope, when we will be united with him in glory, when he restores all things, when he brings this new creation to full fruition in his glorious reign is physically manifested as he is here with us, dwelling with his people, which has always been the desire of God. You wonder why, as we read these descriptions of the new creation and heavenly, the heavenly order, you see the living water flowing from the throne again. It's the same principle that we find a theme all the way through the Bible. A life saturated in the grace of God will be continually expecting and anticipating the blessed hope. That is one of the ways we live our lives. If we look back at this Titus passage, the Christian life, a life that is seeped in grace, will be identified by three things, summed up in these three words that we get from this passage. The first one is denying. A life that is saturated by grace, we will want to deny 
and godliness and worldly desires. It doesn't mean we won't fail and we won't struggle with these things in the flesh, but it does mean that we have Christ in you, the hope of glory. We have the Holy Spirit, the living waters, and we will be continually cleansing and sanctifying ourselves that our heart's desire will not be to walk in that way, even if we fall, but the Lord can wash us and cleanse us and sanctify us with the washing of the water of the word, but our hearts will want to deny this. That's the first thing, the first thing of a Christian. The second will be living. So we get the negative and then we get the positive. Living sensibly, righteously and godly in this present age. And this is, again, we know this by the word of God. You see, following the commands of God, it's not burdensome for the Christian. It's not like, oh, I can't do this, I can't do that. We long, our hearts pant you know, to follow God. We desire God in our lives. We want to be obedient to him. We are more aware of our own sinfulness than we ever have as we come closer to the Lord. We throw ourselves upon him. It's that picture, again, immersing yourself completely in the living waters of God. And then the final one is looking. So you have denying, the negative. You have living, the positive. And then you have looking, the hope for the future. We are looking for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. And within these three words, I believe, you have a beautiful summary of the Christian life that is seeped in grace, but energized, I believe, by the doctrine of hope the God of Israel, the living waters, and we see it in Jesus Christ today. So I want to ask us as a church, let's be intentional uh, about immersing ourselves in those living waters, about drinking deeply from the hope of Israel, the hope of the Lord, from Jesus Christ, and let's follow the examples that we have from the apostles and make sure that we are proclaiming this hope to a world that really needs to hear this message. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word. And I pray now that as we just dwell on these things, as we we meditate on your scriptures, that that would just encourage our hearts, Lord, and stir us up to greater intimacy with you. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.